It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In this episode, you may have gotten fed up with table service at restaurants. I tell you, things are getting better. The labor shortage thing, eh, it's getting better. We're going to talk about it. And we haven't talked for a while about robots and drones doing package delivery. It's actually happening now. I'm going to fill you in on some of what's going on. And does it save you money or cost you money? We're going to talk that through. So restaurant thing. In surveys in the industry, labor shortage has gone from the absolute top item that restaurant owners and managers complain about to way down the list. And don't roll your eyes if you're a restaurant owner or manager and you're still dealing with severe labor shortages. Maybe you are in your restaurant, but the overall picture has improved significantly that the availability of workers is much better. I was talking with a restaurant manager about this uh, after I had read about it, and he said that they started to notice that things started getting better for them when kids went back to school for the fall. And I don't know why, in their case, that was the point at which the supply of restaurant workers, this is a sit-down restaurant, why the supply of workers for him got significantly better. But he said they are not in shortage now. And so it will vary by establishment, but the restaurant experience is better. And at the same time, a lot of restaurants have become more versatile. Uh, For example, stopping wasting the waiter waitress's time, server's time, by going back to run a customer's credit card when they're done eating. I mean, now being able to process the payment at the table like they've done in the rest of the world for 30 years, and they did it in the rest of the world for 30 years because of the labor savings. And by the way, it's safer for you as a consumer that the server comes to you with a device, gives you your bill right there, and runs your payment right there, unless you're paying cash. A lot of restaurants don't take cash anymore, actually. And then the time saved is so much better. This is the kind of stuff that's going on. I've talked about the barcodes on the table where you can order your meal, wait for a server, or order it right from the barcode. That's my husband's favorite. He loves that? He loves it. I love it. There are people who feel like, wait a minute, why am I paying for going to this uh, sit-down restaurant and I'm placing my own order? He loves the bill part of it, like paying the bill, because he always feels like he's being held hostage, as he says, if like it takes forever to get the bill. I enjoy being at a restaurant. No, he's 100% right. Okay. That thing with waiting, you know, a server may have, you know, they may be in the weeds at that point and have too many tables they're having to run right then. And so you are keeping them, when all you're trying to do is pay your bill, you're keeping them from running out a food item for somebody or taking an order of somebody else or running out the beverages for somebody else. So if you can pay your bill right there 
at the table electronically. I'm all for it. I mean, one of the things that's coming out of COVID and the extreme labor shortages we have is more and more efficiencies that are not going to go away. I think about the robots. My uh, middle child lives in Los Angeles, and all the robots have names and personalities that go down the sidewalks that deliver food and stuff to people. So my daughter is like, oh, there goes Jeremy going down the sidewalk. And look, there's Suzanne going that way on the sidewalk. And they all, the robots, so that people don't vandalize them, they all have personifications so that people won't hurt them. But think of the efficiency of being able to do deliveries that way. And when my son and I were in Tempe visiting Arizona State, we saw robots doing deliveries of stuff and of food and groceries down the sidewalks. And it's just great. And this kind of thing is not going away because of the efficiency. And now Walmart, this is moving from being talked about to actually happening, is now offering drone deliveries in all or part of some states. The states they're doing it in, of the biggest states, they're doing Florida and Texas. In addition, Arizona, North Carolina, Utah, Virginia, and Arkansas, Arkansas where Walmart's based, And the drone deliveries are done 12 hours a day. And the idea is you can order an item from a Walmart that's doing drone delivery. And if you're in their retail trading zone for that store, the delivery is done in less than 30 minutes. It's like the old Domino's delivery guarantee, 30 minutes or less. But you do at this point pay four extra dollars for the drone delivery. If I didn't say... The drones carry items up to 10 pounds or total purchases of up to 10 pounds. And Amazon is doing it now in parts of California and Texas, but it's very small at Amazon right now doing the drone deliveries. But the ideas of labor efficiencies that have come out of COVID married to the changes in technology are so meaningful. In pre-COVID, I talked about that marvel that I saw at CES in 2018, I think, that's now actually out there, the robot pizza machine that makes supposedly good pizza. And this is so cool. So let's say you've got a place that it could even be at a place of work where they can't afford to have a staff cafeteria. You can have the robot pizza vending machine. You go up to it. You pick out what you want on your pizza. You decide you want extra cheese or not. You want extra crisp, you know, the crust extra crispy, whatever. You pick it. You pay for it. It prepares the pizza. The robot makes the pizza, puts on the ingredients. You always get the same amount of pepperoni or veggies or whatever it is on the pizza. It's the kind that are the thin ones that it cooks them in three minutes And you have your meal. No workers necessary to make that pizza. Now, it's not going to be made with the love at your neighborhood pizzeria that you love going to. But it serves an efficiency needed in the marketplace. And by the way, if I just infuriated you with any of that about drones, robots, pizza making robots, 
any of that stuff, please go to Clark.com slash Clark Stinks. I'd love your perspective on all the new tech invading our lives or aiding our lives, depending on your perspective. Michael in California says, my credit card was compromised, though it never left my wallet. The credit card company handled it well for the most part, noticed the problem before I did, contacted me, and immediately replaced it. The concern I have is that I have a small number of bills and charitable donations that are connected to the card. I have to contact each of them and provide them with the new information. The credit card company says that anything that's been ongoing for more than six months will just transfer over, but in the past, I've found that not to be the case. Many months later, I learned that a bill went unpaid or a charity is no longer getting the money that I thought I was sending them. Since this seems destined to happen every year or two, is there a better way I could set things up so that I have my easy automatic payments but avoid the hassle each time? Okay, so this was a suggestion originally from a listener to the podcast. And that is that for all your automatic payments, like continuing donations to charities or anything like that, you have a single designated card for automatic payments. Now, most issuers will do a one-time use number for those ongoing electronic payments. Even if a criminal intercepted that, they still don't have your actual number. And that will be potentially a great protection for the automatic payments if you have that designated card and particularly look at issuers that do the one-time use numbers when they are making ongoing electronic payments like that. And then you don't have to worry about those on the, the thing the bank has told you about them migrating the automatic payments from the old number to the new one. It works pretty well now because everybody in the system benefits from that working well. You don't necessarily need to manually update with each of the organizations. I'd say with charities, definitely not. You'll know if they're not getting your automatic donation anymore with any bills that are key that could hurt your credit or hurt your standing or lead to late payment fees or anything like that. I wouldn't necessarily trust the bank on that. I would manually update the form of payment on those to the new number. Robert in Wisconsin says, I'm 49 years old and I have 26 years left on my mortgage. The balance is $123,000 at 5.375%. Paying this mortgage off before I reach retirement age sounds pretty nice. Since I plan on living in this house forever, is there any reason why refinancing with a 15-year mortgage would be a bad idea? Should I look into it now or wait to see if rates drop over the next year or two? So as inflation does get squeezed out of the economy, not if inflation gets squeezed out of the economy, rates will decline. However, if you can find a no closing cost or extremely low closing cost refi on a 15-year loan that would take you below your current 5.375%, go ahead and refi. Now you can refi later if I'm right that rates are going to drop as inflation declines and the expectations of it decline because rates have spiked so much it's a tough time to refi if you can't find a no or low closing cost refi but i didn't say particularly with credit unions they offer the best deals usually on mortgages if you can't find a deal that makes it worth refining, then just prepay on this mortgage that you have 26 years left on You can do an amortization schedule based on your $123,000 
balance. There are lots of apps you can put on your phone, websites you can go to, where you can AM that loan, $123,000, 5.375, 15-year, and it'll tell you what you need to pay per month to make your existing loan work like a 15-year loan until the time comes that it makes sense to refi. Love what you're thinking of doing at a 5.375% rate. It's a great idea for you to prepay on that loan and reduce that balance and reduce the years remaining. Teresa in Maryland says, thanks for the new IRS info and 529 plans on the podcast. We use the Coverdell Education Savings Account Program to save for our kids' colleges. I can't find any information about the Inflation Reduction Act affecting those funds. Did you? I would love to transfer unused college funds to a Roth for my kids instead of the alternative. So here's what happened. The Coverdell, named after the late U.S. Senator Paul Coverdell, never caught on in the marketplace and really was supplanted by 529 plans. And over the years, all the effort has been with the 529 plans. Very few institutions offer the Coverdells and nobody promotes them. So they've been ignored. They're kind of like a college planning orphan. And so nobody's done anything to enhance them or improve them that I'm aware of in forever. So that's why nobody made any changes to it that I can find. And the Coverdell is, as a result now, basically an inferior choice to 529s. One of the things with the Coverdells was they had an advantage over 529s that you could use the money for eligible school expenses pre-college. And then they did that with the 529s. So the last advantage really was taken away. You can move the money from a Coverdell into a 529 plan and do that transfer tax-free. You just got to make sure you do it exactly right. And the 529 plan you want to go to should help you with that procedure. And there's a great article on that on savingforcollege.com. Oh, on moving Coverdell ESAs to 529? Yeah. And I had the privilege of knowing the great late Senator Coverdell, a wonderful man. He really got it about encouraging people to save for their future, including saving for a kid's education so they wouldn't have to borrow a lot of money. And coming up, sticking with the employment theme, going from a five-day-a-week job to a a four-day-a-week job, something I've always loved. What's in it for you, though, as a worker, and what's in it for you as an employer? We're going to cover that. So there's an experiment that I talked about when it was first launched months ago, well, actually last year, early last year, where people were offered the opportunity to work four eight-hour days instead of five eight-hour days and get the same pay for 32 hours a week they were making for 40. And companies had to opt into this. The surprising thing is supposedly the researchers talking to the employers they've assessed, they say, hey, you know what? People are just much more efficient now. And so we might stick with this. Okay, I think that's a bunch of hooey. 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 Is that a word I'm allowed to use, Chris? I like it. Hooey. 
That's not a bad word. Is no, it? no, it's okay. cute. So it's <laughs> a bunch of hooey. Hooey, yeah. I love the four day, ten hour a day work week. You think about how much is involved in, particularly if you have to commute to work, or just what happens with your brain with that fifth day and then two off versus four days with three off. We benefit so much. We recharge. We refresh. And for people who commute to work, cutting a day of commuting out and being able to spread your work four 10-hour days versus five eight-hour days, theoretically, I love that. But going from five eight-hour days to four eight-hour days, and the employer say, oh, we're not going to cut your pay. Come on. There's no free lunch. It's not going to work. And a company will not be able to remain competitive going to 32 hours a week for 40 hours of pay. I mean, come on, it's just... And yeah, the people who designed it, the researchers, they think they're really on to something. I think they're on something. Sorry. <laughs> Did I cross the line now, Chris? No. Okay. So employers, one thing we learned over the last couple of years is we learned how adaptable capitalism is and how flexible it is. People's lives need some amount of flexibility. So having the ability for people to flex to a certain extent that you as an employer can live with may actually reduce your turnover. I believe so much that hearing your employees and not telling them, but hearing what their needs are, what their situations are, and all the rest, you're not running a charity. You're running a business. And what you need is you need more efficiency, more productivity from your employees, and less turnover. Turnover is so expensive. Cost of training new people all the time, so expensive. And this is the ultimate in capitalism, what I call enlightened self-interest. So try it. See if allowing employees, doesn't have to be the whole company, but offer people the option if they'd like to work, four 10-hour days, if it works in the environment of your workflow, why not? If it makes that person a much happier employee, you're still getting the same clock hours out of them, but they're getting something so precious, a third day back in their lives. There used to be something called the Baylor Plan, and don't know if it still exists, but it was an idea that came out of Baylor University Medical Center where nurses could work certain shifts that would get them bonus hours of work. Shifts where the quality of care in hospitals declines, offer experienced nurses those shifts, and they would have to work fewer days. There was a, a version of that where on Saturday and Sunday, the fatality rate in hospitals is much, much higher because the staffing is hit or miss. So if you have very experienced personnel on hand on Saturday and Sunday, you reduce the fatality rate, the mortality rate. And so one of the options was people could work 12 hours on Saturday, 12 hours on Sunday, but get paid for 36 instead of 24 hours because it produced so much better patient outcomes. That's kind of like talking out of both sides of my mouth when I just talked about you don't pay people 40 for 32 hours work. 
but it's all about flexing in your business what is the most efficient way to get it done. Nurses who work three 12-hour days and then have three days off and then three more 12-hour days. I mean, this kind of thing that gives people more flex in their lives is so key, so important, particularly single parents raising children, dual-income couples raising children, and being able to deal with this kid's got this school activity, this one's got this doctor's appointment, whatever. Being able to make your employment work for you and work for your employee's life, you both win. All right, we'll go to questions now. Rob in Pennsylvania says, I'm thinking of getting an electric vehicle for my next car. Do you think it's a good idea to lease one to see if we like it and if it fits our lifestyle? We usually buy used and drive it till the end. Thanks for all the wisdom. So Rob, I'm going to turn this right on its head. There's going to be a great opportunity buying used electric vehicles. They even qualify in many cases for a new federal tax credit buying used instead of new. And there are a lot of early adopters in the electric vehicle space. Got my first electric vehicle 11 years ago, or is it 12 years ago? Long time ago. So there's a lot of product out there that people that want to have the latest, greatest with the most range and this and that and the other, that I'd say the either or you posed has a third thing you should consider. And that's by a used one. Make sure, though, with any used electric vehicle that you have a robust warranty remaining on the battery pack and that if you're buying under a manufacturer program that you have a warranty on all the functions the vehicle come with the purchase. Third-party warranties on used electric vehicles are even more useless than third-party warranties on gas engine vehicles. But you're looking for the most efficient use of your dollars, it would be buying a used one. Scott in Georgia says, I have two separate credit card accounts with the same financial issuer. One of those cards I rarely use. Does it make sense to ask the issuer to combine the credit limit and the age of the older, less used account onto the one I use monthly? I'd rather not close out the practically dormant account for the impact on my credit score. Yeah, so... What I would do in this case, for whatever reason, the second card has no role in your life. And Scott, you've not said if you have cards from other issuers, but if the only cards you have are these two, only one of which you use from one issuer, you're in a heap of trouble if that issuer suddenly decides they don't like you. And then you have no cards and it's harder to get cards at that point. What I'd like you to do is find a card from somebody else that would be a compelling use card that has whatever it is, an interest rate if you run balances or has rewards that you'd really like that are really nice. You can look at our sections on Clark.com for info on either of those. And then when you get that other card, go to your current issuer and say, you know, I'm not really using this other card of yours a lot. Can we, can we do just what you ask? Can we combine the limit on both and just have one card instead of two? The worst they can say is no. Jonathan in Florida says, I used to have 33 bad collections to include three repos. I worked with a credit counselor for over a year learning how to dispute and pay down the debt. 
I'm debt-free now. I do have credit cards, but only use them for the perks. I pay them off monthly. Maybe I missed it, but I did not see anything related to disputing bag collections. I learned that after so long, the debt may be sold, and if they do not have the correct documentation, the debt is removed from the credit report. I had at least 10 debts removed when we did this. Are there any other steps or advice that you would give? Okay, so collections disappear after seven years regardless. They age out. Many of them become less significant over time anyway. You have done a phenomenal job. Think about how you've not just a little bit, but solidly rebuilt your credit standing. I want to repeat what you said as I close out this podcast, Jonathan. At one time, you had 33 bad collections, three repossessions. Thanks to working with a credit counselor, you're now rock solid, paid down the debt, you're debt free, and you have reward credit cards, meaning you've totally rebuilt your credit standing. And that leads me to what my dad used to say when he was alive. He died back in the 1980s. But something he used to talk about that I remember, like he said it today, is life is 99 rounds. And there are rounds you're going to be knocked to the canvas. You're going to have to dust yourself off, get back up, put your mouth guard back in, and go back in the ring. Life will always have the unexpected. It'll have the blind tackles. It'll have all those things that happen, blindsided tackles. And we can't just give up at that point. We push through. We work through. And we take on a problem till it's solved. And the old trite expression, how do you eat an elephant one small bite at a time? You tackled the problems you had with all those bad debts and conquered them. And I want you to take inspiration from Jonathan. And remember, when you face difficulties in your life, not necessarily just about your wallet, whatever it is, remember what my late father said, 99 rounds. Some are going to be good. Some are going to be great. Some are going to be terrible and some are going to be in between. But don't give up on yourself and pick yourself up and work your way through till you're winning again. Have a great day. <laughs>